want to thank you for your prayers uh, during my study leave last week, and uh, it was a battle, as I expected, but I believe the Lord prevailed, and because of your faithful prayers, I just want to kind of um, give you an update and tell you kind of where we're headed this year, because I'm excited about it. Um, just a little background, just to let you know, each year I go into my study leave having some idea of what we might do this next year, just things that I've been praying about, thinking about, hearing from people as I've talked about it. And so this year I kind of went in thinking that we would spend some time in Galatians. But what I try to do during that week is be in silence, be in solitude, and be in prayer. And really read through and ask the Lord, is this where you want us to be? So I started out with Galatians, read through, considered, and got through it and thought, I don't think this is where we're supposed to be. And so part of the battle for me is uh, making sure I don't fall into this trap of just trying to check it off the list so I can move on and start planning out the series, but that I'm really sensitive to where God is leading. And if that's not where it's at, that I would go to the next thing and see if that might be where it's at. And if that's not where it's at, then I would go to the next thing. And so that's part of the challenge is just keeping patience as I wait on the Lord. And so... What I did is I was reading through several, and it just didn't seem that's where the Lord wanted us to be, and so I read through Titus. And then as I was reading through Titus, I realized in chapter 2, it talks about how the older men are to invest in the lives of the younger men, and the older women in the lives of the younger women. And I realized that Titus was a pastor of a multi-generational church. It's also in that same letter that uh, Paul talks about the importance of elder governance, and he speaks specifically to that. And I began to realize that Titus was pastor over a church, which sounds like to be much like ours. And so maybe there was a great reminder and message within that letter that would apply to us. And I really felt like the Lord was saying, that's where you need to be. So in a few weeks, that's where we'll begin, is looking through a letter of Titus. And then what we're going to do is something unique this year. And you can be praying about this because the idea is still developing. But this year there are four Sundays that have five Sunday months. Okay, April, July, September, and December. And for three of those, the first three, what I want to do is set those Sundays aside as what I'm calling a fifth Sunday family worship. Because as I was reading through and considering the value of what it means to be a multi-generational church, I thought we need to take some time every once in a while to celebrate that, to have kids in the service, to have the students involved in helping lead our worship, and to really celebrate the diversity that we have within this body because it's pretty unique. When you look at other churches and other assemblies, this is a blessing. And so on those fifth Sundays, I want us to celebrate that. Um, after Titus, we're going to begin a study in Acts, but Acts is a bit of a daunting task because it's a big, long history. And so what I've decided to do is to kind of break it up in its natural transition. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you look at the story of Acts, it basically follows that pattern. It begins in Jerusalem. The first seven chapters look at the, the, the movement of the Christian faith and the establishing of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And then persecution comes. You see that in the life of Stephen in particular. But because of that persecution on Christians, they begin to disperse out of Jerusalem. And so James is the first chronological letter written in the New Testament. 
and he's writing to those persecuted Christians who were in Jerusalem who are now dispersed in other parts of the world. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 through 7 and understand what's happening in the life of the early church, and then we're going to look at James. And hopefully that context will make a very familiar letter of James come to life. So that's the big picture of where we're headed this year, and I would ask you to be praying for that. Uh, For the next three Sundays, we're going to do something um, that ties back to what we finished up in the fall, because we've been looking at the life of David, and in particular, that promise that God made to David to establish a kingdom through a descendant of David. And so what I want us to do is take the next few weeks and consider what that means for us. What does it mean to be a kingdom-minded people? The Bible tells us that Jesus came and he established his kingdom. He inaugurated that kingdom. And we are citizens of that kingdom, so how should we then live? Well, that's what we're going to think through together over the next three weeks. So if you would, let's just pray together about where the Lord is leading us. God, we want to pray not just for this morning, but really for all that you have in store for us over the next year. We know that uh, in our past, we've realized that there are things that you knew about that we had no clue about. And it just so happened that when we got to certain passages that we had planned early ahead of time, it just seemed to fit exactly where we were in that moment. And we're going to trust that this year will be no exception. And so we offer all of this to you that that you may work mightily in our hearts, in this church, in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, to accomplish your good purposes for the praise and glory of your name. And would you begin with that happening even this morning as we come before you. We pray this in your name. Amen. We may remember the thing that I tried to highlight is the most important part of our study this past fall was God's covenant promise that he made to David. And the reason that was important was because that promise has a direct link to you and me. It was a promise, as you remember, to to build a legacy through the household of David. A, A legacy that would lead to a descendant who would eventually establish God's kingdom. It tells us that it would be an everlasting kingdom. And this descendant, his rule, would have no end. We talked about as we finish up that study how that promise was ultimately fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was the descendant of David who established God's rule in the hearts of his people by conquering the power of sin. See, by the death of Christ... He took the penalty that we deserved. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he broke the power of sin's curse. So that when we trust in him, the Bible tells us that we are rescued from the domain of darkness. And we are transferred to the kingdom of God. To the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens to God's kingdom, is what it's referring to, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Paul's saying we're no longer strangers and aliens into God's heavenly kingdom. We're actually fellow citizens. He said earlier in that same passage that, that we were strangers and aliens to God's covenant promises. 
that we were without God and without hope in this world. But then he circles back around and says, but through faith in Christ, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens in the household of God. Citizens of a heavenly kingdom made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Bible also says that now, being a citizen of heaven, we are strangers and aliens in this world in which we live. It's why believers should have this nagging sense that that we were created for something more. Something more than what this world has to offer. And for probably all of us, even though we've tasted what this world seems to offer to satisfy our hunger and promises to, to, to make us feel happy and, and, and fulfilled, the reality is it only leaves us feeling empty. It's why we need to understand that this world is not our home. And, and so the question is, how do you live a fulfilling life in a world that's not your home? How do you, as a citizen of heaven, live a kingdom-worthy life in a foreign land? What does that look like? Well, that's what we're going to begin to unpack together this morning. It's an important question, I think, that we all need to ask and answer. But before we answer that question, I think it's important for us to understand, first, the miracle of redemption that has taken place. And in order to do that, I want us to kind of build on this idea of what it means to be a citizen. So, for example, in most countries, including our own, you are a citizen when you are born in that country. Now, there's some nuances to that law, but generally speaking, that's true. You are a citizen of the country in which you were born. It's true according to our constitutional law, but there's also a similar truth in the biblical law. According to the Bible, you and I were born into the domain of darkness. By our birthright, we are citizens of a sin-cursed world. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says that through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. In other words, as a descendant of Adam, You and I were born under the curse of sin. David is much more explicit. He just cuts straight to the point in Psalm 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's because he knew, according to to biblical law, we are citizens by birth of a sin-cursed world. We are born into the domain of darkness. It's a place where Satan rules and we exist as slaves to sin. Now, in recent weeks, you've heard the news of uprising in Iran from people who live in that country who are protesting against a very corrupt clerical regime. They want more out of life than what's being offered to them within that environment. And if you know anything about that corrupt clerical regime... (laughs) They have every right to rebel. But here's something I want you to understand. There is no rebellion in the domain of darkness. 
there is none. In the domain of darkness, the Scripture tells us that we live according to the lusts of the flesh. In other words, we were content to gratify our sinful craving because of a sinful nature and a corrupted mind. Nobody's rebelling. Because everyone is feeding that selfish appetite for sin. There are no rules. Each one is doing what is right in their own eyes. There's nothing to rebel against. We don't know any better. And that's the ultimate power of sin's curse. It makes us blind to the reality of our own sin. That's why the Bible describes redemption as a rescue. It says we are rescued from the domain of darkness. I want you to listen to Paul's description in Acts when he's talking about that rescue when he encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus. And I said, Paul speaking, who are you, Lord? And, and the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Our rescue begins when God opens our eyes and we see the reality of our own sin. See, you may remember when Paul says in Scripture, he says, I didn't know what coveting was until I read God's word and it said, thou shalt not covet. And then I realized I'm coveting all the time. <laughs> That's the reality. God's word exposes our sin and re reveals that barrier that it creates in our relationship with God. And then God invites us to something better. We know that because the scripture tells us that we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As he says here in Acts, from the dominion of Satan... To the kingdom of God. But in order for that to happen, in order for that transfer to take place, there is a very important decision that must happen. And here's that decision we must be willing to change our citizenship, we must be willing to transfer our allegiance. We see that illustratively in our world today for example if you were born outside of the united states and you wanted to be a citizen of the united states you could do that it's quite a process but you can do that and the main part of the process is a willingness to transfer your allegiance from your old country to then submit to the rule of the new country and abide by those boundaries and for many people, in order to do that, they've got to leave family. They've got to leave friends. This is no small decision to transfer your allegiance from one 
to the other. And I think we see something very similar happening within salvation. We have a change in citizenship. That's why the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's because there's been a transfer of allegiance where we agree to live in accordance with the law of God. It's a decision to surrender to the rule of God in our lives. Turning from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of God. The place where scripture tells us we find redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now this is where the illustration breaks down a little bit because we can't compare the laws of our land and the laws of scripture because the laws of our land are crazy, all right? Very often I think they intend more harm than good. Legalizing abortion, legalizing drug use, don't get me started, it just doesn't match. The illustration breaks down completely because the law of God is perfect. The law of God is not like the law of this land. There's goodness. There's goodness built into his design. God's law is intended to protect us from harm and ultimately to lead us to his highest good in our life. But if we're honest, being a new citizen under this rule, there's a difficult transaction that takes place. We, we keep wanting to slip back to the old neighborhood, so to speak. We keep wanting to, to slip back and, and begin to do things that we used to do. Some of those old patterns where we did what was right in our own by, eyes, that we're drawn back to the promises that this world makes, that this is where you find happiness. This is, this is where you find true pleasure. But if we're honest, sometimes we follow those offers because we think that in this situation, we might actually know more than God does. In fact, I would go as far as to say this, that there is a root cause of all sin. When we stop believing that God truly intends our highest good. And so instead, we choose to go a different way. Ultimately, that decision to go our own way is the root of all sin. And it's the absence of faith that God intends our highest good. I love what Todd Wagner at Watermark has to say when he's talking about this with his church family. He says, look, we've got to understand this. God's not trying to rip us off. He wants to set us free. God is not trying to rip us off. <laughs> he's trying to set us free. His goal is to bring about his highest good in our lives. And the more we get to know God, the more we experience the reality of this truth. Even during hard times, we experience the reality that he can use all things to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. And not just normal, average, boring life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. That it would be far and above what you could ask or imagine. There is goodness built in to his design. Which brings us back to our dilemma. Through faith in Christ, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. But our address hasn't changed. 
We still live in the same place. We are strangers and aliens in a world that is not our home. So the question that we asked in the beginning is relevant here. How do we live kingdom-worthy lives in a foreign land? I think to begin to answer that question, we got to understand our purpose, our, our reason for being here, because the reality is we're here for a reason, right? I mean, we could be in the presence of the Lord in the heaven that he's prepared for us that will someday be revealed to us, but for now we're here. And why? Why are we here and not there? Well, it's because the Bible is clear that, that God has given us a purpose in carrying out his kingdom plan in this world. That passage in Acts 1.8 says that you will be my witnesses. We are heavenly representatives. Citizens of a heavenly kingdom commissioned to represent God's rule in a foreign land. What do you call that person? It's an ambassador, right? An ambassador. An ambassador is somebody who is from one place and representing that place in a foreign land. They're an ambassador, and Scripture calls us ambassadors as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, the new have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, you're ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through you. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's why we're here. We are ambassadors. We are representatives of a heavenly kingdom, and our job our job is to continue the work of Christ in this world in which we live. Living out of the reality of what it means to be reconciled to God, experiencing that miraculous transformation of old things being gone and new things being come, of coming. A new creation in Christ. In order to do this, see, God doesn't want us to blend in. He wants us to be set apart. He wants our life to, to look different than the world around us. He wants us to be kingdom citizens in a world that is not our home. So as we finish up this morning, I want us to get real practical about what that looks like. What does it mean to be a kingdom citizen who lives in a foreign land? For most of us, I think we hear that and immediately what starts going through our mind is things we don't do. Right? Well, we don't do this, we don't do... It's the, it's the list of the don'ts. And that's okay because there's some truth to that in that we have been called to, to live under the rule of God. And God's law has some very clear re restrictions. For example, citizens of heaven are told to flee sexual immorality. It's one example. Paul says, abstain from lustful passion. And he goes on and says, like the Gentiles who don't know God. What he's saying here is living out of lustful passion is a lifestyle from Satan's dominion. 
Living out of lustful passion is a lifestyle of Satan's dominion. It is a behavior of those who don't know God. So when we give in to sexual immorality, we are submitting to Satan's influence. Think about that. You're willingly submitting to Satan's influence. Satan, right? The deceiver. The thief. The one who comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, to to rob you of all the riches of who you are in Christ. See, when you choose to go your own way, don't be fooled. You're only following the ruler of this world and living under the influence of his dominion. But I also think it's not enough for us as believers to say, so don't do that. Don't get involved in that. We can't stop with just this list of don'ts. Because as a citizen of heaven, we, be, we have to believe that God has something better. For one, he created marriage. The place where that life-giving intimacy is intended to take place. And there is goodness built into his design which far surpasses any of the selfish pleasures of sexual sin. Even in singleness, God promises that he will satisfy every hunger within our heart. It says that we just don't give something up. We trust him for something better. Let me give you another example. This is familiar because this is another one of those easy ones we see on the don't list. Don't get drunk. And the Bible says that. It says, don't get drunk with wine. But if you look at that passage in the Scripture, it actually gives the kingdom alternative. It says, don't get drunk with wine, but as a kingdom, as a citizen of heaven, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Once again, getting drunk is a lifestyle of Satan's dominion. You submit yourself to an influence that inhibits your self-control so that you say things you wish you wouldn't have said. You do things you wish you would not have done. It's a pattern that proves to be increasingly destructive in your life. All we're doing is searching for something to satisfy the longing of our heart that the world seems to offer as a solution that only leaves us feeling empty in the end. But kingdom-minded people says that we are called to be filled with the Spirit. Very often, we drink too much in order to escape reality, right? That's very often why it happens. We want to escape reality, but being filled with the Spirit helps us face reality with a sober mind. Instead of dulling the pain, it helps us deal with the pain in a healthy manner. Submitting to the influence of of drugs or alcohol ultimately creates a false reality. They are fabricated feelings. But to be filled with the Spirit is the real thing. It's what you were created for. It's what produces joy in the midst of difficulty, which, if we're honest, makes absolutely no sense in the world in which we live. It is a distinguishing characteristic of kingdom-minded citizens. 
I think one of the places where we see this most evident is in the reality of death, when we lose those that we love. We've certainly experienced that reality in our little church over the last year. But hope in the midst of grief is a kingdom citizen quality. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We see beyond the limits of this world. And what we see is the joyful anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what we see. You see, I don't know about you, but I've got a ways to go, maybe, maybe not. But I found this, that the longer that I live, the less this world means to me. When I was young, the world was full of opportunity, right? It had so much to offer. But I've learned over time that every time I try to satisfy my life with, with, the, with what the Lord world says is going to make me happy, it just leaves me empty. And for me, I've tasted it enough. I don't want it anymore. It just doesn't work. It's not all that great. I'm ready for something better. And that's the point I'm trying to make. Kingdom-worthy lives are not just a list of don'ts. It's the heartfelt conviction that God has something better. Which doesn't mean that kingdom-minded citizens don't go, go through hard times. It does not mean that, that kingdom-minded citizens somehow live a dull and, and boring life. What it does mean is we experience the reality of life in a whole different way. A way that is not consistent with the patterns of this world. It's what allows kingdom-minded citizens to get more out of everyday life, not less. This should be one of the most attractive attributes of our lives as God's chosen people. Now, I want you to know that I'm fully aware of the irony here. You're hearing this from a man who has admitted struggling with depression. That doesn't sound like somebody who gets more out of life, and that's fair, right? That's fair. But I need you to understand something. I'm teaching you out of things that I'm learning to be true in my own life as well. I'm growing in my faith in God's highest good for my life. And here's what I've found to be true. Now listen to this clearly. Kingdom-minded citizens, it begins with a transformed mind. Being a kingdom-minded citizen begins with a transformed mind. My doubt and discouragement 100, 100% of the time is due to wrong thinking. Every time. I've learned that I, my, what I have to do is I have to saturate my life with God's truth or I will start believing lies. I will find myself in a pattern of wrong thinking. I need to be in God's word on a regular basis and not as a duty, but as a dependence upon the Lord. That's why I run into passages like Psalm 19 that says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I read that and I think, well, that's part of the antidote to my sickness. God's word 
is an antidote to depression because it says it rejoices the heart. It's where we find about life that's to be lived abundantly. I need to commit it to memory when I can. That's how important it is. That's why I challenge you every once in a while to, to memorize Scripture, like we did with Psalm 91. Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I, I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge. You are my fortress, my God. And in you, I will trust. I need that. I need God's truth in my life. Or I'll start believing lies. That's just the reality. I also need godly people in my life. I need people who will come alongside me and remind me of what's good and right and true. And that is one of the richest blessings of this church body is it is filled with people who are consistently intentional about speaking loving, encouraging truth into each other's lives, me being no exception. I have received that over and over again. I need people to come alongside me who love me enough to, to be able to look at my life and hold me accountable when how I live doesn't match with what I say. I need those people in my life because I've got blind spots. I've learned how important prayer is for me. This posture of dependence where I need to be in prayer in order to align my heart with God's will so I don't find myself going out on my own path, doing what's right in my own eyes. See, when I spend time in prayer, that's the place where I am fully known. I realize that as I bear my heart before the Lord, I'm not hiding anything from Him. I may be hiding everything from you guys. <laughs> you wouldn't know it. But with God, He does. I am fully known. And yet, I am fully loved. I am fully known, and yet I am fully loved. So what that means for me is that I can fully trust in whatever God calls me to fully do. And so here's something I want you to know. When I left my job at UMC, I did not lose out on something great. I trusted God for something better. That's why I'm here. And that's why I believe in this truth, because this church body is a tremendous blessing to me and to my family. And I am honored to be your pastor. We're in this together. David and Mary Ann and I were just talking this morning about how this church has a unique way, and I mentioned it earlier, of just loving each other. And as your pastor, I receive that, and I hear about that on the front lines, and it does my heart good. And we were talking this morning about, you don't always see that. Sometimes we can get caught in just the ritual of doing things over and over again, and we forget that what God has ultimately called us to is life together as heavenly, heavenly citizens in a world that is not our own. And it's a tremendous blessing to be a part of this church body. See, here's my heart's desire. It's consistent with what Paul prays when he writes to the Colossians, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom 
and understanding. That we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in all the good works in ways that bring honor and glory to Him. Increasing the knowledge of God. Strengthened by His power, according to His glorious might. Patiently enduring hard times and giving thanks to our Father. Why? Because He rescued us and made us citizens of heaven. Transferring us from the domain of darkness that by our birthright we were born into. Transferring us into the kingdom of God. His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. God's not trying to rip us off. He truly, truly wants to set us free. He wants us to live soul-satisfying, kingdom-worthy lives that ultimately bring glory and honor to Him. Because as John Piper reminds us, God's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. Kingdom-worthy lives proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Not by simply giving up good things. (laughs) but for sincerely trusting God for something better. That, my friends, is a kingdom-worthy life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the promises of your word, for the truth that we hear that both opens our eyes to sin in our lives, but gives us the solution through forgiveness from your Son, who sacrificed his life, shed his blood, so that we could be saved. And Lord, may we live in that reality day after day after day as heavenly citizens who live in a world that is not our home. We're here for a reason, and you've given us that reason. You've told us that we're your witnesses. We're we're heavenly representatives in a world that is not our own, called to continue the work of Christ in this world until he returns. Lord, help us to be set apart, to to not blend in. And not because we're giving up good things, but because we're trusting in you for something better. Something that truly satisfies our soul unlike anything this world has to offer. May we be recognized because of the joy that we have even in the midst of difficulty. Hope even in the midst of grief. Because we have anticipation and joyful anticipation for the promises of God that will be fulfilled in our lives and we trust you for that goodness because you built it into your design and that's a promise we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ amen have a great day